who would you associate with the word gifted? Just think about that for a moment. What sort of person comes into your mind in relation to the word talented or gifted? Perhaps a preeminent composer or musician. We say they are extremely gifted. Maybe a successful businessman, an inventor or a groundbreaking scientist. Possibly even a footballer of some ability. Or perhaps even a famous pop star. Any of these people we might describe as gifted. However, I wonder if any of us thought not of an individual, but of a group of people. Because you see, in the Bible, above and beyond anyone else, it is the people of God, the church, who are gifted. Gifted, that is, for ministry, for service. Indeed, as we come to Scripture, we discover some staggering things about the Christian in the context of the church. We find that every Christian is gifted. We discover that every gift has been given by Christ. And we find that the purpose of every gift is to serve the body of Christ and to bring it to maturity. And so as we continue our series through 40 Days of Purpose, we arrive this morning at the fourth purpose for our lives, our corporate lives, our personal lives, and it is ministry. The understanding that you are shaped for serving God, if you are a child of God. Now let's consider this together as we turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, which addresses this matter so clearly. Earlier the children read for us from verse 1 of this chapter, but we're going to focus specifically on verses 7 to, 40 to 16. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, 
we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Well, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church could be summarized as addressing one fundamental question. And the question is this, what does it mean to be the church of Christ, to be the body of Christ? And over six chapters and 154 verses, Paul responds to this fundamental question. Indeed, you could say that he gives a blueprint for what the church is and what the church does in the letter of Ephesians. And just prior to the verses that we read, Paul has highlighted yet another facet of what it means to be the church. The apostle says that it means being a unified community, one body with one Lord, that by their love and concern through their unity, others might see that they are the body of Christ. But building upon this foundation, in verse 7, Paul now moves on to add another dimension to this blueprint. He says, not only is the church to be a unified community, but it is to demonstrate that unity by being a serving community. There is work, says Paul. There is service for the church to do. We have not just to be the church. We have to do what the church should do. And for this task, what we might call ministry or service, Paul says the Christian is not ill-equipped. You see, there is adequate preparation for every believer in this task of ministry. And this is the first point that Paul wants to underline for us. Preparation. Now, when people enlist to serve in the armed forces, to be part of that team. They go through an intense period of preparation. They're not simply thrown into combat with no skills and no training. Rather, they're given equipment for the task. They're carefully instructed on how to use that equipment. They're given some practice and then sent to the field with further instruction even then. And the Christian who has signed up to follow Christ is also thoroughly equipped for the task. Notice, will you, two ways in which the Christian is equipped. Firstly, the gifts of Christ to every believer. What Paul says in verse 7, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now what does Paul mean? Well, he means that every Christian has a gift. He means that no Christian has all the gifts. And he means that every gift has been given by Christ. So what I mean, first of all, every Christian has a gift. Paul does not say to some of us, to a select few, grace has been given. Instead, he says, to each one of us, gifts have been given. And this kind of grace, this kind of gifting that Paul is speaking about, we might call gifts 
for ministry, grace for ministry. Of course, if you are a believer in Christ, it's true to say that you have been graced by God in salvation. You didn't deserve to be rescued, and neither did I. You didn't earn the right to have new life breathed into your spiritually dead corpse, to use the picture of Ephesians 2. And neither did I. But God graced us in salvation, did he not? And yet the wonderful news is that that is not all the grace God has for us. God has a lot of grace to give. He not only gives grace to save, but he gives grace to serve. Why, this was true, of course, in Paul's own life. Remember, when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, he was not only converted, he was not only called into the kingdom of God, but he was also commissioned to a particular task. And in the New Testament, Paul speaks quite often about this kind of serving grace. For example, in Ephesians 3, verse 7, he says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. Paul just couldn't get over the fact that he had not only been graced for salvation, he had been graced for service. And what Paul is saying is, look, this grace is not peculiar to apostles. It's not peculiar just to me. Every believer has gifts and a call to ministry. Now, Paul lists these gifts in various parts of the New Testament. Here in Ephesians, Romans 12, which Richard will look at with us tonight, is another list. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is another and these lists, probably not exhaustive lists of gifts, highlight the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit gives to the church, to individuals. But Paul's point here is that if you are a Christian, then you have at least a gift, maybe more gifts. Nevertheless, Paul is also clear that no Christian, secondly, has all the gifts. Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. The word apportion comes from a Greek word, metron, from which we get the word metric. And Paul is literally saying that Christ has measured the gifts to us. No one individual gets all the cake in the church, just a measure. And therefore, while it would be wrong to think that you have no gift, it would be equally wrong to think that you have all the gifts, that you could somehow go solo as a Christian. You know, I've heard it said that some people are better at maths while some are better at English. Well, I'm one of those people that's better at English than maths. And mainly because I'm hopeless at maths. And I can assure you that if the Charlotte Chapel finances were down to me, we wouldn't break even each year, we would break the bank. Thankfully, some of you are gifted in that area. And in other areas of administration. And yet maybe to you, the thought of coming up into a pulpit and preaching turns your hair grey. Or greyer. <laughs> and that keeps you humble. And that keeps me humble. And that makes the teamwork, does it not? Notice something else too, however. That every gift, Paul underlines this, has been given by Christ. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul does not say the Holy Spirit apportioned the gifts. Not in this instance. Usually in the New Testament, when spiritual gifts are spoken of, they are in relation to the Holy Spirit. And Paul's point, I think, is this. Christ, the head of the church, has not left his church ill-equipped. And the reason we can be sure of this is found in verses 8 to 10. When he, that is Christ, ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. Paul goes on to say that after Jesus descended to earth, he then ascended into heaven. And at that point, he gave gifts as he went, referring to Pentecost. And whatever this means in precise detail, the basic point is clear. You see, whenever the ascension is spoken of in the New Testament in relation to Jesus, it always speaks of his authority. His unquestionable authority. And Paul's point is that if Jesus has ascended into heaven in triumph, that he has every right, every power to grant us gifts. We should not doubt it. And you see, this is important to stress this because many Christians do that, don't they? They doubt it. They doubt their gifting. And they don't roll their sleeves up, not because they're lazy necessarily, but because they think they have nothing to offer, nothing to proffer. And Paul says to you, listen, if Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, if he has all the authority to grant you gifts, then you dare not suggest that he is unwilling or unable to give you gifts. You may lack confidence in yourself, but you should not lack confidence in Christ. As surely as he is God's ascended king, he has given gifts to men. Secondly, there is also the gifts of leaders to the whole body. It was he, verse 11, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Interestingly, here the gifts to the church are not so much activities, but actual people. Sometimes the gift of God to the church, the gifts are people. And while we don't have time to look into these in great detail, let me say two things about these. These are leadership gifts, firstly, and they are word gifts. Clearly, these offices are part of God's leadership structure for the church. God has designed a church in which everyone is equal, and yet where there is different roles where some are expected to lead and some are expected to follow that lead. And of course, in foundational terms, the real trendsetters for the church were the apostles. Strictly speaking, the twelve disciples of Jesus and Paul. The eyewitnesses of Jesus' risen majesty, who in the first century wrote much of our New Testament. Prophets, too, in the strict sense, were those who functioned at the same time as the apostles. Before the New Testament came into being, they spoke the word of the Lord in infallible fashion as a compliment to the apostles. And so Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 of the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And they still lead us today through the scripture as we have it written down. Evangelists too were pioneer preachers and leaders in the church taking the gospel, as they still do today, into new territory, laying fresh foundations. And then, of course, once the evangelist leaves, then there's the ongoing work. And the pastor-teacher comes in 
and takes over to help build up the church, or a plurality of pastor teachers. But notice, however, that all of these are also word gifts. They all involve the Word of God, the Bible, in some way. The apostles and prophets who spoke the Word of the Lord, the evangelist who preached the gospel, the pastor teacher who has no greater responsibility than to expound the Scripture. And therefore, this picture of church leadership is of those who prepare the church, but crucially, by the Word of God. Not their own ideas, but God's ideas. Equipping the church. Now, this together with the fact that we have been given gifts in Christ should prepare us for ministry. But of course, you can be thoroughly prepared, but never get stuck into the action. And speaking as someone who has procrastinated about driving a car for many years, you can read all the manuals you like, or you can get all the instruction you like, you can make the promises that you like, but you need to get on the road and actually get into the action. And so realizing this, Paul moves from preparation to secondly, participation. And these verses, 11 to 16, Within these, Paul answers three fundamental questions that you might have this morning about ministry. Firstly, he deals with who is to get involved. Who is ministry for? And Paul's straightforward answer in verse 12 is God's people. Verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service. The criteria, the only criteria for service in the church of God is that you first belong to God, that you first are part of the church. Or put slightly differently in verse 16. From him, that's Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So it is the whole body of Christ. It is each part which is called to minister. John Stott, uh, an English pastor, preacher, writer, tells the story of visiting a church in the United States. He was a guest preacher this particular Sunday. And on his way in the door, he was given one of the church bulletins, such as we have here in the church for information. And Stott was taken aback by what he read on this bulletin. At first it was the name of the rector, the pastor, then the name of the associate rector, followed by the name of the assistant rector. But what then followed was surprising. It read, ministers, dash, the entire congregation. And Paul would have said, amen to that. If you are part of the body of Christ, you are expected, you are commissioned to participate in ministry. So who is to get involved? Clearly, it's God's people. But let's say you agree with that. Secondly, Paul deals with, what are they to do? Paul gives a great summary of Christian ministry in verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service. That's the task. To engage in works of service. It's a coupling of two ideas. On the one hand, Paul says, ministry involves work. And on the other hand, he says it involves service. You know, ministry, if you've ever been involved in it at any kind of level, you will know it is often just plain hard work. 
And sometimes it can be quite a wearying thing. Paul himself was a hard worker. He could see in another place, 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than all of them, and yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Sometimes when I'm feeling a little bit tired, I read some of these great biographies that you can get. Great men and women who served the Lord fervently. Read about someone like George Whitfield, who sometimes in a week preached 19 times. In a week! You don't feel so tired when you read about that. Involves work. It also involves service. This is not the work of selfishness. It is the work of service. And how easy it is to participate in ministry, but only for our own benefit. Purely for what we get out of it. So that when we no longer get a kick from it, when things get hard, tough, we clear off. And maybe our motives were not right in the first place. Because ministry is about serving others. This is what we are to do. But just a little parenthesis here. Suppose you still view service as an optional extra. Uh, perhaps you've opted out of ministry. Maybe you did quite a lot in younger days as a Christian. Well, what then? Well, as well as the consequences to the whole body of Christ, think of the consequences to your own life, personally. Do you know the reason why the Dead Sea is so salty? The Dead Sea in Israel contains no plant life, no fish life. And the reason is that there are no outlets to the Dead Sea. There is a great volume of water that pours in, but nothing flows out. And many inlets, plus no outlets, leads to stagnation, a Dead Sea. You know, friends, there are a lot of Dead Sea Christians stagnant Christians and they wonder where the joy has gone they wonder where the assurance has gone and yet the answer is not a mystery they can look back to the day when they opted out of Christian service we are to work in service to the church and to the world which needs to hear the gospel and Paul explains thirdly why they are to do it the incentive of ministry is so that the body of Christ might be built up in love. This is a picture uh, from architecture. As twice in verses 12 and 16, Paul speaks of building up, building up. Earlier we were hearing about the construction of a physical building at Nidri. But the church of Christ, as John underlined, is not made up of bricks and mortar. It's made up of people. And it is built up by love. And when we serve with love, staggeringly, we are enabled to play some part in God's building project. Or to put it another way, we serve so that we might reach maturity in Christ. So that the church might become mature. A few months ago, there was an interesting article in one of the newspapers titled, The Crippling Cost of the Kidult generation. It said, parents whose grown-up children refuse to fly the nest are facing financial hardship. A growing breed of kid adults, that's child adults, are relying on their parents' handouts as they struggle to achieve independence. God does not want spiritual kid adults. He does not want a childish church. 
He wants a mature church. And this is why we minister, why we serve. Paul says, verse 14, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. We become a mature church by not only hearing, but by applying the Word of God in ministry. So may we be that kind of church, a mature church, because we are a ministering church. Now we're almost finished. We began by thinking about talented individuals. And you know, talent shows on television are very big business these days, and especially the music competitions. And invariably the goal in these sorts of competitions is to use one's gift, one's individual talent, to beat off the rest of the competition, to win the record deal. It's a self-serving talent in some ways. But I want to finish with a different picture, contrasting picture of music. When you think of church, think not so much of a soloist, but think of a symphony orchestra. In order to perform a sublime piece, as well as having the right music, there is needed all sorts of gifted individuals to play their part. Though there may be some very gifted soloists, they cannot produce what they all produce when they play together, as each part does its work at the right time and in the right measure. That's a wonderful picture of the church. And therefore, if you are part of the church, then I ask you this morning, very simply, are you playing your part in the body? Are you participating? Or are you simply a spectator enjoying the music? If that's the case, then now you know there is no reason to be sitting on the sidelines. No excuse. You know, sometimes people wonder, how do I apply these sermons when I get out the door? How do I put this into practice? Listen, this morning, it's really easy. Go to one of the stalls downstairs. Consider one way in which you could serve in this church. But before I close, I want to ask you a, another question, a final question. And it's this, are you part of the body? See, this sermon has been aimed mainly at Christians, necessarily at Christians. And yet you and I dare not assume that you are part of Christ's body. See, uh, attending services on Sundays, or even getting involved in some worthwhile activity in the church is not enough to bring you into Christ's body. You become a Christian only when you come to Christ, accepting Him as your Savior and as your Lord. And therefore, if that's you this morning, then I urge you to stop using your talents, your God-given gifts, just for yourself. Turn to God. Trust in His Son. He'll forgive you for your sins because of His death for you on the cross. And then pray, take my life and let it be, Lord, wholly yielded, Lord, to thee. Let's pray.